Welcome to the Her Empowered Divorce Podcast. I'm your host, Beverly Price, and I am the empowering divorce coach who guides you on your journey before, during, and after divorce so you can eliminate pain, overwhelm, sadness, and anger, and create more knowledge, skill, and peace than I experienced myself. With my 30 years of divorce and empowerment coaching experience, I understand exactly what you're going through. Divorce is a difficult and emotional journey, but it can also be a time of growth and transformation. Through this podcast, you'll gain valuable insights on all aspects of divorce, from the logistical and financial to the emotional and legal. My goal is to empower you to confidently move forward in your divorce, manage your emotions, think clearly, avoid common mistakes, and ultimately create a happy and fulfilling life. With expert guests, practical advice, actionable tips, and inspiring conversations, we'll explore how to master your divorce and emerge stronger on the other side. You don't have to face this journey alone. Let's start together and create a better future for you. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, beautiful. I'm so glad you're here today. I am so excited about our episode. I've always been curious about what a prosecutor's thinking when they're going after domestic violence abusers. Well, my guest today is Angela Sarabia. She is an attorney who has spent most of her career prosecuting crimes, especially violent crimes against women. And that is what we are so interested in today. While she was a prosecutor, she won two awards from local domestic violence organizations. In her spare time, she's also an actress. And I'll let her tell us how that is connected to her domestic violence work. During the pandemic, she was inspired to write her first play, which focused on ways which violence is used as a tool of manipulation against women. And it addresses unique issues women face as they become victims of a violent crime. Welcome, Angela. I am so glad you're here with us today, and thank you for being here. Hey, Beverly. It's great to be here. This is Domestic Violence Month, and so it wouldn't be complete without thinking about where the prosecutor is coming from. So when we think about it, we think about going to court, we think about the fear in the victim, but please let us know what a person can expect once law enforcement has been called. So it would be the step before court. Absolutely. So once law enforcement is called, and this is true in almost every jurisdiction in the nation, once they're called and it's determined to be an actual domestic violence situation, and each state defines that differently, but generally people who live together as a family or share a child in common, if there's violence between those two individuals, that's considered domestic. Once they determine that, law enforcement uh, officials are almost all Uh, required to follow a policy of mandatory arrest. The reason for that is because like back before the 1970s, law enforcement would advise and separate. 
So they would put, you know, put the man in the kitchen, talk to him, put the female in the garage, talk to her. Um, that idea being that, hey, you know, guys don't know where the tools are in the kitchen. You no know, one's going to be able to grab a weapon. It's kind of these outdated notions of men and women's roles. But they would do that. Then they would tell the, the offender, usually the guy, to just go stay somewhere else tonight. Go take a walk. Um, and then that would be it. They wouldn't make an arrest. Uh, violence was seen as a family matter. And women were dying. They were being killed um, at great rates. So an, a study was done, I want to say it was in Detroit in the 1970s, and they did, um, uh, they just, <clears throat> they would just randomly assign, some officers would be assigned a blue paper and they were to arrest, and some officers would be assigned like a red paper and they were to advise and separate, and they found when you have mandatory arrests, fatalities went down. So it just became the policy in almost every police department in the nation now um, to arrest one of the parties. Um, a lot of times that affords the victim some time to gather her belongings, to reach a place of safety, um, to call on family and friends to get her out of that situation. It's important to know that mandatory arrest is the law of the land because oftentimes a victim will say to law enforcement, well, I wanted you guys to come and, and, and stop the violence, but I don't want anyone arrested. And law enforcement officers aren't trying to be rude, um, but they they must arrest in a situation besides the fact of which it's a crime. You know, of, uh, even if a husband so much as shoves a wife and, and she, for or I say husband and wife, but fe a female partners is, is hurt in any way, that's a crime. And so law enforcement officials are um, honor bound to do their duty and arrest in that circumstance. So mandatory arrest will happen in most cases. I've heard um, statistics, and I want you to see if this makes sense to you, but that 70% of women that are leaving their abuser are murdered. What 70%? do you think about that statistic? Yeah, that's what I've heard. Do you think that's high? It might be a bit high, but it just depends on how you define abuser. Um, so, uh, you know, if you have an actual situation where there's ongoing uh, violence and violence is happening in that cycle of violence, so it's happening on a regular basis um, uh, and it's uh, escalating over time, which is what we tend to see. So if it, if it starts with pushing, punching, slapping, slowly over time it escalates to choking, hitting, threatening with weapons, um, that statistic for that type of actual um, bona fide, it's the cycle of violence is at play thing. Fatality rate can be very high. Um, nobody really can predict anything with an absolute certainty, but um, studies right. have shown certain types of things happening in the arguments will make it a little bit more likely that we will have a fatality. One of those is uh, uh, threats to kill coming up a lot during the argument, where he's actually saying, I'm going to kill you. That's more likely that there will be a fatality. Anytime he pulls I keep saying he because oftentimes, you know, the violent perpetrators tend to be men, even though this isn't always the case. But if the batterer pulls out a weapon during the course of an argument, whether that's he's cleaning it, he's displaying it, um, anything of that nature, a weapon comes out and tends to be involved, it's more likely that a fatality is the case. Um, anytime uh, one party is choking and cutting off the airflow of another party, it's much more likely that we may have a fatality in that circumstance. Um, so things like that, um, 
tend to make it more likely. So oftentimes, if I was speaking to a victim and I saw that those things were going on in the case at hand, I would say, you know, it's far more likely that you're going to die at the hands of your abuser here if you do not exit this situation, because I'm just telling you what the statistics are, that fatalities are more likely in these cases such as you have. And every prosecutor's office in the nation has this circumstance where you come to work. I remember the first time it ever happened, I came to work Everybody was real quiet. It was like I was suddenly, you know, at a funeral or something. And one of our victims who we had been talking to was murdered. And it happens all the time. So people oftentimes don't factor that into account. Women tend to, in a domestic violence situation, uh, really face that, uh, you know, risk of fatality if they don't exit that violent circumstance. You you had mentioned that um, some women once the police come, say they don't want to have the abuser arrested. And I've also heard that with protective orders, a lot of women come back and change their mind. What do you think is going on in the mind of, of a victim that causes that? So many things. And I think there are things that we can all understand. Um, one of them is oftentimes the abuser is her source of as much as it's a source of risk and danger for her, he's also her source of safety and support. So a lot of times that's financial support. So, um, you know, she's obtained, let's say she's uh, obtained a restraining order and um, she's got children to think about. And uh, it starts to become clear that it's very hard for her to get the financial uh, help that she needs. And the abuser is the source of that. Um, while he's in jail, he can't be working and earning money for things for the kids. Even if they're going to go through a divorce and she's going to leave him, she still needs that income coming in um, to right. provide child support patient, uh, payments, other things like that. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times it's emotional. You know, the victim is in a place when the abuser is present and uh, the victim is in great fear. She wants safety just like we all do. Once he's been removed from the situation and the second guessing starts to set in, I think we've all had that experience. And you know, we have a conversation, right. we go home and we start to doubt ourselves. Hey, maybe I was a little bit dramatic. Maybe I was a little bit mean. Maybe I was part of the situation too. Um, and she starts to second guess herself and think, well, I'm safe now. That's what I really want. I don't want to see him lose his job. I don't want to see him anything bad really happen to him. I'm, and oftentimes I think as women, there's this sociological pressure to not, you know, we don't want to be seen as vindictive or going out of our way to cause anybody right. trouble. Men don't seem to struggle as much with this, but women really do. We want to be seen as the good guy, somebody who's being reasonable. So oftentimes right. uh, a victim will say, okay, I'm safe. That's what I wanted. Um, I don't, you know, maybe his attorney or he himself has said, look, if, if this restraining order goes through, he's going to lose his job. Or if this charge sticks, he's not going to be able to volunteer at the church anymore, you know, things like that. And a victim puts that blame on herself. Well, you know, I'm causing him this, this difficulty. Right. And she doesn't want to be seen as doing that. Hi, everyone. As parents, we often have gut feelings when something just isn't right. And this can be especially true in co-parenting arrangements where one parent is struggling with addiction. If you're co-parenting with an ex who abuses alcohol, Soberlink can help. 
Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they are not drinking during parenting time. The system's real-time alerts, facial recognition, and tamper detection ensure the integrity of each test, so you can be confident your kids are with a sober parent. With Soberlink, judges rest assured that your child is safe, attorneys get court-admissible evidence of sobriety, and your kids are able to maintain healthy relationships with both parents. To sign up, Soberlink's offering $50 off your device for our listeners. Visit www.soberlink.com empowered, and that will be in the show notes as well. So she turns his, um, his violence into her problem rather than his problem. And her Maybe. fault, and that's... And part of that is the abuser has been telling her that the entire time. So one of the hallmarks of this abuse is constantly blaming the victim, even though it's the abuser cycle and they're going to commit that violence because they want that sense of control over their world. He's telling her it was because you set me off. It was because your drinking, you know, upset me. It was because I, you know, you didn't have the dinner ready on time or you made me feel uh, emasculated or whatever it is. He's telling her she's setting them off. She's causing it. So she's heard that before and she's taken it to heart. And and I just think it's true. Also, as women, we do tend to blame ourselves for our circumstances. It's not a good thing. But but a victim will take that blame on. And oftentimes it's not all her. The abuser is telling her that. And sometimes well-meaning family members or even members of her faith tradition may also be telling her that it's her job as a good wife to um, to maintain the peace in the home. So there's just a lot of forces reinforcing that idea for victims. Yeah, stick with them for better, for worse. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I also think that there's this pattern of isolating the victim so that it, there's less support around them. Does that play into this at all? Absolutely. Uh, the first thing that will happen in a good, an actual bona fide uh, case of domestic violence, once, you know, a lot of times the batterer is a charmer. He's somebody that um, everybody else sees as a great guy, um, a great person. And he will start to isolate his victim from family and friends who would otherwise be telling her, Hey, I don't like the way he talks to you. I don't like the way he treats you. Um, and that isolation serves two purposes. It makes the victim much easier to control. And it also makes it much harder for the victim to get out of the situation because she doesn't have those support levers to pull on to remove herself from the situation. So, um, wow. and, and oftentimes the, that the, vic, the violence itself is isolating because as much as we have progressed as a society, there's still a huge stigma attached to it. You know, everybody hears yeah. a case of a woman, uh, who's being, uh, subject to violence and they say, well, why, why would she stay with him? Or why would she let that happen? And how come she didn't do this? And how come she didn't do that? Um, and so she doesn't want anyone to know about the violence because it's embarrassing. People whisper, people talk. So that in and of itself starts to isolate her. So that isolation does make a victim feel when it is time to go like helpless and like it's really hard to leave. Um, and that's why a lot of times as a prosecutor, it's our job to start making the victim aware of that you're not alone, 
There are all kinds of right. organizations. There are support programs. There are um, every domestic violence shelter has an outreach program with a support group. And I would always tell victims, you need to go to these support groups because you will see that you're not alone, that women who are strong uh, leaders in their community, educated, wonderful people were also the subject of violence. They escaped the violence. They know they can tell you how and they can give you that support and you need it. I mean, none of us can do things on our own. We rely on the support of others and victims of violence are no different. What is the importance of a safety plan? Oh, I love that question. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a good one. So, um, Let's suppose we have a victim of domestic violence. She knows she's in the cycle of violence. So she recognizes, hey, we're going to have uh, violence. Then there'll be this uh, period of calm. There'll be kind of a honeymoon phase where he says he's sorry. This isn't going to happen again. But then the tension's going to rise and that violence will be coming again. And she knows, okay, I have to get out of this situation. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to just run out the door screaming, you know, uh, it makes sense to be strategic and smart. It may be the case that he has control of all the finances, that he has, um, uh, you know, made it harder in many ways for her to go by taking the credit cards and things. So a safety plan is um, uh, all of your documents in a place where they're easy to grab. Um, people that you know, you can confide in and say, hey, if I give you a call, please come pick me up. Maybe you've reached out to the local domestic violence organization and they, uh, every county in the country, there's one that has a secret uh, location for a shelter. So you've spoken to them. They won't tell you where the shelter is, but they'll tell you where to call when you're ready to go and they'll take you there, something like that. And all of those things are in place. So if it, and, and victims often know when the violence is coming because they can feel that tension rise. They can see, okay, he's drinking again or whatever the triggers are. If that starts to happen and you fear that violence is about to occur, you grab that bag, you put that plan into action um, and you go so that you're, you don't feel like you have to suffer this violence because you don't have a plan. A lot of times I would talk to a victim about a safety plan if she was thinking about leaving, but she's not ready yet whether that be because right. the children have to be secured or whatever it is, then, you know, because oftentimes I'm saying to her, go, let's go right now. Let's call the shelter right now. And if she says, well, not right now, then I say, well, then let's talk about safety planning. Yes, absolutely. So let's say this progresses to court. What are the differences in the court system about handling um, the criminal case that comes from this particular incident? Sure. So um, the court system can seem kind of uh, crazy if you're not used to it. And um, one of the biggest distinctions in court is we have civil court, which is when two parties have a disagreement and they sue each other. And all divorces are in civil court. It's husband versus wife, wife versus wife, whatever it is. Those are two parties against each other. And the rules in that court are different than criminal court. Criminal court is the state of Florida. That's where I live, Florida, state of Florida versus an individual. So in the case of a crime, uh, a crime against one of us is a crime against us all. You know, it's a breach of the peace. It's, um, you know, if, right. if, if somebody, if I go into Walmart and I steal their merchandise and walk out, it's not Walmart versus Angela Sarabia. It's the state of Florida versus Angela Sarabia 
um, to, you know, prosecute me for the crime against Walmart. So same thing with that domestic violence. It's not a batterer versus victim. It's the state or maybe the federal government versus the batterer. And the victim is simply a witness in the case. So oftentimes a victim may come in. The batterer is probably saying to her, you need to take care of this. You need to drop this. You need to make this go away. So a victim comes in to talk to me as a prosecutor and I tell her, ma'am, you're not in control of my case. You know, I'm, I represent the government. I'm in control of this case. I want to hear what you have to say, but ultimately I will determine whether this goes forward or not. And you're simply a witness. And it can get a little bit ugly in some jurisdictions if a victim doesn't want to testify or isn't willing to uh, participate. Sometimes the government will come after her and say, look, we're going to have you held in contempt if you refuse to come in and talk about the crime that occurred because we need to keep the P- the public safe from this individual. And it's not simply about you anymore. So in that criminal system, uh, it'll be very different. And for victims who are going through a divorce and a criminal case, they're constantly toggling between these two different systems that have different rules. Um, and that's where oftentimes speaking to a victim's advocate with the sheriff's office or having the services of a good attorney can help you not feel so out of place in both systems. Absolutely. Um, what do you say to the people that say, uh, well, the bigger issue is women false reporting domestic violence that yeah, they focus it- on that rather than the problem? Absolutely. So I get that question sometimes when I speak. Um, and I will say the issue of false reporting, I mean, the, it is so unlikely to be the case that a report of domestic violence is false. And there's several reasons for that. The first of which is um, most victims of violence will tell you it's embarrassing. You know, it's it's not anything anybody wants to claim. It, there's nothing about it that's glorifying or makes you look good at all. So uh, oftentimes a victim is overcoming that embarrassment, overcoming that sense of shame to make a report. Um, secondly, is when a victim makes a report ab- about domestic violence and calls the sheriff's office, there's oftentimes not a lot in it for her. Um, you know, the criminal justice system will come, they'll arrest an offender, they'll prosecute an offender, but There's no pot of gold on the other side. You know, the victim walks away from court and the batterer gets a criminal justice sentence, you know, some time in jail. And that's all she really gets. Um, So oftentimes uh, this talk about a false report is this idea that a a woman would be so vindictive that she would really want to see this terrible thing happen to a man. Um, And I, I really find that that's not the case for most women. Finally, the odds of a, the 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 um the scales are stacked on behalf of a defendant in a criminal case because in America we want we we hold all arrested people innocent until proven guilty so we presume everybody's innocent and that presumption must be overcome by evidence and the standard of proof is beyond any or beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt. So in order to actually convict someone of domestic violence, you have to prove they committed the violence uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And I've lost cases before where I've had um, no injuries and no independent witnesses. Um, And so if if a victim tries to just make it up and there's no photos of injuries and there's no um, other corroborating things, oftentimes she doesn't prevail. And so the point to that just is there's just not a lot to be gained to make up something. And I think everybody sort of knows that. 
Um, so I just don't, I've never seen false reports of violence um, to be a, a huge issue. Every now and then you might have a case where a victim's trying to make an injury seem a little worse than it is for whatever reason. But oftentimes police officers take photographs, they gather other evidence, and those issues are sorted out prior to trial. Gotcha. Um, so what should a victim do who's going through a divorce against the abuser to keep herself safe, to keep her family safe, to keep her loved ones safe? I love that question. Um, there's so many things, but this is something that she may not think about at the outset. But number one is cease any and all communications with the batterer. There's almost nothing to be gained. Um, and it's important to start with that at the outset because oftentimes the victim has kind of calmed him down, talked him down. He's told her, yeah, you, you know, she's kind of led her to believe she is responsible for his emotional state. Right. So she's like, well, gee, if I stop talking to him, then, you know, he's going to go crazy. Um, but oftentimes that communication, he's getting back inside her head. He's getting her to feel that fear. Um, right. Once you're into a divorce process, your attorney can communicate with the other side just fine. So number one, follow the advice of an attorney. Um, uh, stop any and all communications with the batterer. They don't help. Um, it, it's probably true that in the case of actual bona fide domestic violence, the threat and the, the danger does go up a little bit when a victim does leave. But if she gets to a secure location, if she ceases all communication, if he recognizes that the threats and the temper tantrums aren't going to change the game, those will tend to go down over time. Um, she still needs to take her safety very seriously, um, but stop all communications. Um, the next step is to obtain an injunction for protection, also called a restraining order. What that does is, is it puts everybody on notice that um, there's this Batterer is not to be at certain locations that the victim frequents. For example, um, I go to a Christian church here in town. I give a little bit of advice to our church safety team. If uh, someone comes in and they've obtained that restraining order, the safety team takes it um, and is aware, okay, if we see this batterer come by and wants to come worship, you know, at our gathering, we say, hey, you're, you're not to come here because this court paper says uh, you're not to be here. And that protects the the victim, uh, the schools where the kids go to school, other places. That way she feels like, okay, if I see him here, I can call law enforcement right now. And I don't have to wait till he does something uh, criminal. Um, so a lot of people will say, oh, a restraining order is just a piece of paper. If he's going to come do harm, he's going to come do harm. And that may be, but oftentimes a batter is trying to intimidate the victim make the victim feel afraid just by driving by and doing other things that would not otherwise be criminal. Um, but this restraining order makes it criminal. It says you shouldn't even be here and allows law enforcement to remove him. Because just imagine a circumstance where you're sitting in church and your batterer walks in. If there's not a restraining order, he's allowed to come to church. You know, he's just there to worship. So it kind of provides that layer of protection. and also lets the batterer know that the victim is very serious about this and he can stop trying to, goad her into anything that she's really serious and, and ready to get herself and her children safe. Um, other than that, I would also say, tell people, family and friends, the situation, don't be afraid of the stigma. Let people help you keep an eye out for you. A lot of times people want to help. So I uh, can think of a victim that I've been advising and she let people know people came over. They helped her install a ring camera in her home. They offered to watch the kids. 
so she could get some things that she needed. People are upset by domestic violence and they want to help. So um, those are just some of the things I can think of off the top of my head to fit them to keep safe. Many people feel divorce is a death sentence, but with the right support and guidance, you can move through the process with knowledge, skills, and confidence. It can also be a time of growth and progress. As a divorce and empowerment coach, I'm an invaluable member of your divorce team. I help you understand and navigate the process, come to terms with your emotions, avoid costly mistakes, learn skills to help you communicate and negotiate, find your true voice, and create an empowered life post-divorce. If you're interested in learning more, schedule a free consultation at HerEmpoweredDivorce.com. So let's say, oh, I'm sorry, Beverly, I just thought of one more thing. Um, Sorry about that. So when there's a criminal case, so let's say we have a divorce going on, the victim's got her injunction, she's doing her safety planning, she's following the advice of her people in her local domestic violence organization. If there's a criminal case going on and the defendant has been arrested, And oftentimes he's going to pay his bond money and get out of jail. When he does that, that the bond or the bail, um, there's certain conditions he must abide by. In every domestic case, unless otherwise told not to, a judge will order no contact with the victim as a condition of release. So let's say he goes into jail, he comes out and he texts her, you bitch, I hate you. That text is a violation of his bond. Call law enforcement. They take a look at the phone. They go put him back in jail where he can sit until the case is concluded. So that's another layer of protection for victims that that any contact, if he hires a skywriter, if he posts on her Facebook page, any contact with a victim is going to be a violation of his pretrial release, and he can be taken back to jail for that. Gotcha. You bring up an interesting point social media (laughs) in this dynamic does social media aggravate the situation oh that's a good question um it's one of those things that's out there that cuts both ways on the one hand it just provides more ways that a batterer can keep tabs on a victim can see where she's at what she's doing because we voluntarily post so much um i would say if a victim is truly concerned about say we have a stalking situation or something like that, it would be great advice to tell friends, hey, if we're out, let's not post pictures today, guys. I, you know, I'm trying to keep my location secret. Let's not tag me in photos. Um, so, so that can be, you know, it cuts that way, but it cuts the other way where it creates a record. So if the batterer is in there bad mouthing her on Facebook, what I would say as a prosecutor is print screenshot those things and let's print them out because They are admissible in court under certain circumstances. I can at least confront a batterer with it. Hey, you said this and that and get here to say what he has to say about it. So there are all things that paint that picture. So it can be a tool um, for both in divorce proceedings and in um, uh, criminal cases to show the pattern of intimidation, to show, to corroborate what the victim's saying, especially if there are threats. I'm thinking of Instagram messages, Facebook messages where he says, I'll find you. You can't hide from me. Print those out. Don't respond. There's no need for response, but print them, save them, present them to your attorney or the prosecutor in the case, and just use that as a tool to uh, keep yourself safe. 
I would think another thing that's important is um, with telephones, with cell phones, you can have like joint accounts. So she may be on his plan. She also may have that, the apps where they track your location. Mm -hmm. I would think it's important to turn all that off. Um, maybe Absolutely. Maybe a burner phone or something. Yeah, you know, there's so much technology out there for surveillance. Um, some of it's very sophisticated, but our own phones can be used as tools of surveillance against us. Um, so it yeah. would depend a lot on exactly what the situation was. A lot of times phones are expensive and a victim doesn't want to just get a whole new phone. But I would say um, it may be worth its weight in gold to get your a new phone. Um, you don't know, maybe he's installed software on the phone that even if you think you've turned off some of those uh, you know, Google Maps or whatever, and maybe that there's technology you're not aware of and he's monitoring your communications. I can think of a woman I was advising where a husband did just that. And unbeknownst to her, all of her text messages and, and all the other communications, he was seeing that. So first and foremost, I would say, talk to your attorney about it. If you're lucky enough to have a good attorney, they may advise you to get a new phone. Um, and maybe in a divorce proceeding, he may have to pay for that. Um, it, it's a uh, it, it doesn't have to be the best phone on the market, but it's new, new number, because you may need to block him from any and all communications. That may be harder to do. Um, I also think if they're on the same plan, he may be able to print out uh, maybe not the, the conversations, but who she's called in the past two months. He can right. see those phone numbers and maybe he starts calling everybody she's called and says, what are you doing talking to my so-and-so? So my thought is, Get a new line, get a new plan, get a new start, get a new phone, but also be aware of other forms of monitoring technology. One woman I was speaking with, the husband had slipped a recording device into her purse. So she's talking about the violence, talking about things in the car, and all, he's hearing all of it. So um, uh, new, uh, it's maybe friends who are tech savvy coming, hey, take a look at my car, take a look at my things. What do you think? And just being aware of all those different ways um, that, that you need to just be thinking about in a digital world, a connected world to keep yourself safe. Mm. What would you say to the, the community at large? I think there's a huge issue with us condoning domestic violence through our silence and through our inaction. What would you say to people at large about that? That's a really good question. Um, what I would say oftentimes is um, there needs to be a lot of understanding uh, for victims out there. Um, so oftentimes we mean well, but when we are judging other people, sometimes it comes out of fear. You know, we don't want to believe that we could ever be a victim of violence. We don't want to believe our daughter, uh, a friend, a family member could ever be a victim of violence. So to tell ourselves it could never happen we say to ourselves and to anyone who would listen, if this happened to me, I tell you what I do. I leave them or worse, you know, I've heard women that they're right. being flippant, but they'll be like, oh, I put them, you know, he'd never see the light of day or whatever. Um, what I would say is right. um, we don't want to judge a person until we've walked a mile in their shoes. And the first thing you can say to anyone who reveals to you that they are a victim of, of any kind of violence is I am so sorry that that happened to you. And you should not have had to go through that. Um, try to keep right. questions that mean well, we all mean well, but are questions like, well, why, why, why were you together for so long? Or why didn't you call me? You know, things like that. You mean well, but it can come across as judgment. 
Um, and then if you feel passionate about this, um, talk about it because I, I've talked to people, you know, um, I was in, I knew someone in college and, uh, they got violent with me on a couple of occasions and I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't want anyone to see me as somebody who would let something like that slide. I didn't speak up, but when I've told other people about that experience, they've gone, Oh my gosh, something like that happened to me. You know, maybe it happened once when I was young, maybe it's happening right now. But when we share that vulnerability and we talk about those unspoken things, people can reciprocate and they can talk about it too. Um, And so just raising our voices is huge. And then of course, giving to our local domestic violence organization, every county, every locality has one. So look it up. Hey, go to a fundraiser. Give them a little money, um, do something of that nature because they're out there on the front lines providing ways to keep victims safe. And that giving can be voting with your feet and um, letting people or letting the organizations know, hey, there's support for the community for you. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and so one more I'm thought I had about that. Um, sorry, I interrupt you. Was just that I, this is something that I saw in my work is that we sometimes think of Domestic violence as being something that, well, it occurs in uneducated communities. You know, we have this vision in our head of there are a couple of people in a trailer, you know, nobody's got a college education and everybody just, they're ignorant out. But that's not the case. I saw victims come in, uh, wealthy victims, educated victims, smart victims, church-going victims, um, church-going batterers, you know, just it is, it cuts across every socioeconomic status, every education level. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about sexual violence, but same thing, you know, it's, it's out there. Um, I think we think of domestic violence sometimes as a problem more of the past, you know, more of the ninth, early 1900s. We've, we've progressed so far as a society, but it is happening in, um, you know, at least, I would say, uh, the fir- one third of every woman I met has had an experience that I've heard about. So who knows if it's more like one half. So my thought is, um, let's just stop seeing it as isolated to one type of community or education level and just see it as, hey, this is a social problem that is out there and that we all struggle with and and remove the stigma. Well, I'm proof of that. MBA, senior corporate executive and a victim. But now I'm a survivor. So I love that. I love it. Um, When we talked about at the beginning that you had created this play that highlights issues with domestic violence. How have you used theater in that way? Oh, I love that question. So um, theater is just my release. It's my escape. It's my hobby. Um, So um, I I really, during the pandemic, especially turned a lot of that because you couldn't perform, you know, you couldn't go anywhere. So I, I channeled that into writing and, um, I really, my play is about, um, strangers. So it's, I wanted to write about domestic violence and relationship violence, but I didn't want to put it into a relationship setting just because it can be so bleak and so complex. So I made it between strangers, but I wrote a play about a woman who comes into work on a Saturday and encounters two criminals breaking in and they're trying to keep her there and they're trying to get her to stop interfering. So they're trying to control her. She's trying to figure out how to turn them against each other to, to, so that she can get away and so that I could explore all the subtle ways that violence can be a tool of manipulation. Um, so I sort of wow. took a lot of what I learned and baked it into the dialogue and into the experiences. 
Um, so every time one of the criminals who was really bad would use violence in either a subtle or non-subtle way, um, the other criminals like, well, you just made him upset, you know, you've just aggravated him. And she, you know, the, my main character is saying he's doing it all on purpose, all this getting upset, throwing things around. That is just, it's all purposeful. It's all calculated. And that was sort of my way to raise the audience to think about violence differently. We, it's not an outburst of somebody who's uh, lost control of themselves. Oftentimes it's an outburst by somebody who's trying to gain control of the situation. Um, right. So just a way to, because I find that when we come into a theater and we sit down and the lights go down, we watch the stage, we tend to have an open mind. We're ready to see and hear things that we don't normally allow ourselves to. And we're, we we're willing to consider another person's perspective because that's what theater and movies and entertainment does is it gives us an opportunity to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. And there's an empathy that arises and an understanding that arises in a way that doesn't necessarily occur at a, you know, in a class or at a talk. So just using theater as a way to open some minds, Hey, think about violence differently. Absolutely. Well, I like to ask all my guests to come up with three actionable tips that women can use. And in this case, it would be women experiencing some form of abuse. What tips would you give to them? Um, okay, so um, this is something we didn't talk as much about um, when we talked about the cycle of violence, but <clears throat> that word abuse kind of encapsulates not just violence, but also some emotional abuse. So um, a lot of right. times victims would, I, I, almost every time, a victim would say, hey, bruises heal. Um, the, the physical violence isn't the worst part of the relationship. The worst part is the emotional abuse, the things he says right. to me, the ways he makes me feel. So number one, I would say um, if you're a victim who's isolated, first action step is regain your support structure. So maybe that parent or friend or sister or brother that you right. haven't spoken to in a long time, let's reach back out. Um, so number one, find your sources of support. Um, Number two, I would say is um, if there's a crime going on, don't be afraid to call law enforcement. Things have changed. Law enforcement officials now are um, very well versed in domestic violence. They have specialized training to understand some of the dynamics involved. And there are jerks everywhere. But generally speaking, they're going to be very um, kind about it in ways that you may not expect. So number two, don't be afraid to call law enforcement. And then um, number three is um, because feelings aren't facts and a lot of times we can be, we can feel very unempowered. Um, and, and our, our feelings have led us into the situation that we're trying to get out of now. Um, find your trusted people and start to follow their advice. So that may be right. that, um, friend who's always been telling you, Hey, you deserve better. That may be your attorney who's saying, look, I know you feel like you need to call in and smooth things over, but I'm telling you not to, or it may be, um, the domestic violence professional who's saying, I think it's time for you to come into the shelter, but you're following the advice of people and putting your feelings to the side for now um, because they've led you here. Um, uh, you know, these people care about you. Let's uh, follow your advice. And there's going to be overwhelming support for you out there. Um, I think a lot of times we can all get into our negative self-talk. You know, nobody cares. No, everybody's going to blame me, things like that. And I think you're going to find in most cases your fears about that are probably untrue. Most people are going to surround you. They're going to embrace you. They're going to care about you. 
And so let's make sure to have that positive self-talk that um, you can, um, you, you will have more support than you think you will when you start to exit the situation. Yeah. One of the things, just another question I thought of is the situation where people on the outside are very uh, vocal against domestic violence. But then when an abuser is in their family, it's a very different story. Have you seen that? Absolutely. Um, I've seen that a lot because I think in our family, we, we want their... We want peace in the family. We want everybody to get along. So oftentimes the the family, you know, everybody in the family is going to say, well, I see both sides of this. You know, um, they don't want to believe their family member could be capable of violence. So, yes. you know, yeah. he's saying, you know, he's saying I, I wasn't that bad. I didn't. She's saying I hit her. I didn't really hit her. I pushed her. It wasn't, you know, and we want to believe that, you know, we, we don't we don't want to believe that our family members are capable of violence. And, and people in the family want to be seen as neutral. They, they see uh, what, what they consider to be, you know, a bitter uh, situation and they want to see both sides of it. Um, so I, I do see that a lot. Um, it may be as much as I was just counseling people to uh, get a hold of those support people. It may be that your family is not a good source of support right now. If you're yeah. saying that there's violence and or emotional abuse and they're not hearing you on that, it may be time to step away from our extended family. And get around some professionals, get around some, uh, that's why being in a uh, support group for survivors of violence can be so important because I guarantee you there'll be someone in that group who went through this, who can say, yeah, you know, hit my mother took his side or my sister didn't believe me. Sometimes that can really crush us when the people who are supposed to keep us safe don't believe us exactly. about how bad it is. I mean, people just don't want to believe this is so common and they don't want to believe it happens. So it may be that even though your family has always been your source of support, it may be that right now they're not hearing you and you do have to step away. And, and once you are able to get yourself into a safe place and move on from the relationship, then can be the time for mending. But for now, it could be, hey, we got to stop listening to them. They're not helping you here. Um, sometimes our faith traditions, which are very like family to us, can be unhelpful. Maybe you've got a right. pastor who's saying, hey, we just need to counsel you too. We just need to uh, work it out. So all those things I would say, if violence is going on, talk to the professionals that handle violence all the time, because they may be more helpful in, your, in their guiding of you than family can be sometimes. This has just been such an incredible time together. How can our listeners find you if they want more information? Okay. Um, uh, so I'm on Facebook. Uh, my name is Angela, and then my last name is S as in Sam, A-R-A-B as in boy, I-A, Sarabia. Um, you can find me there. Um, uh, I don't have a website or anything. Uh, a lot of times I'm just getting – people will – because I've just become a voice in the community against domestic violence, I'll get messages in my Facebook inbox all the time from people I don't even know saying, hey, here's my situation. So um, send me a message. Reach out to me. Um, if I don't know the answer, I'll know somebody who does, especially in law world. Um, and that's a great place to find me. Um, my play that I've written, Duress, um, I'm just, I got a theater to put it up, which was wonderful. I want to do that more. Um, but for right now, it's just a script that I've got. So if you'd like to bring Duress to a theater near you, um, Facebook would be a great way um, to, uh, to reach out. Uh, you also have my email address. Um, maybe you could put on the, 
uh, website for the podcast, email me. I give out my email address to anybody and everybody. I figure, Hey, if it ever becomes a problem, I'll just change my email address. So I get emails, um, all the time looking for advice, having questions, anything. So email me. I, I love it. It's my passion. So you're never bothering me. Um, if it's like, Hey, I have a friend, she's got this personal situation. I'm here to help. I love it. So contact me in those ways. And, uh, I look forward to, to helping in any way I can. And what's your email address, Angela? It's Angela Sarabia or Sarabia, Angela Sarabia, 103 at gmail.com. So my full name, 103. Awesome. Thank you so much for being my guest today. This has been so informative and I think it will be so helpful when you think about one out of three women are the victims of domestic violence. This information is absolutely critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Beverly. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. And to the audience, thank you for being with Angela and myself on this episode of Her Empowered Divorce. All of Angela's information will be available in the show notes. This and all our episodes can be found at herempowereddivorce.com on the podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also watch the video version on our YouTube channel, Her Empowered Divorce. Please like and subscribe. Please share our story with your friends so we can help and reach out as many women as possible. Join me for our next episode where I'll be diving deeper into what other expert professionals can share to help you. Remember, you can find more information, again, to eliminate the pain, overwhelm, and create more knowledge and happiness at HerEmpoweredDivorce.com. Until next time, stay empowered. Hello, Empowered Women. I'm Susan Guthrie, and with over 30 years as a leading family law attorney and mediator, I've stood by many as they navigated the intricate paths of divorce. That's why I created the Divorce and Beyond podcast. Drawing from my own expert insights and bringing in some of the country's top voices on divorce and its many facets, we aim not just to help you endure the storm, but to rise and shine brighter than ever in your beautiful beyond. If you are a regular on Her Empowered Divorce with Beverly Price, you already value empowerment during these challenging transitions. Together, our podcasts form a safety net, ensuring you don't just survive, but you thrive. So take my hand and let's journey together. Listen to Divorce and Beyond wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Remember the best is yet to come in your beautiful beyond. You can find the podcast on all major podcast outlets or on the website divorceandbeyond.com. Thank you for listening to the Her Empowered Divorce Podcast. Remember, divorce doesn't have to be a death sentence. With the right support and guidance, you can move through the process with knowledge, skills, and confidence. It can also be a time of growth and empowerment. As a divorce coach, I'm the first call you should make when you're contemplating divorce as the next steps will take and set the stage for your entire divorce and life after. I help you understand and navigate the process, come to terms with your emotions, and avoid 
avoid costly mistakes. Find your true voice and create an empowered life post-divorce. If you're interested in learning more, schedule a free consultation at HerEmpoweredDivorce.com. Take care.